This is uh, the 13th. 13th of October. It is the 13th of October. Um, and it's, I believe this is the first day of the month of um, Keshvan. Let's open in prayer. Our Father, our King, we thank you that you have uh, uh, given us your word and that in that we can find great delight. Lord, we know that the delight that we find in your word is the revelation of who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us. We know that without this revelation, we would still be lost and blind. And we thank you that you have used your Holy Spirit and your uh, Holy Word to illuminate yourself, that we might know you. Father, we know that all of this is designed to draw us back to you so that we might spend uh, eternity, even today, with you. And we ask that you might open your word for us today, that we might uh, enjoy your presence, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Uh, let me read. This is, uh, this is a prayer from uh, uh, the Siddur. This is actually a very, very ancient prayer. This is from... Uh, uh, it has been altered a little bit because of the destruction of the temple, but this is the uh, um, this is a prayer for the uh, uh, Rosh Chodesh, the uh, renewal of the moon, new month. Our God and God of our forefathers, may their rise, come, reach, be noted, be favored, be heard, be considered, and be remembered. The remembrance and consideration of ourselves, the remembrance of our forefathers, the remembrance of Messiah, son of David, your servant, the remembrance of Jerusalem, the city of your holiness, the remembrance of your entire people, the family of Israel, before you, for deliverance, for goodness, for grace, for kindness, and for compassion, for life, and for peace on this day of Rosh Chodesh, the new moon. Remember us on it, Lord our God, for goodness. Amen. Consider it on us for blessing. Amen. And help us on it for life. Amen. In the matter of salvation and compassion, pity, be gracious and compassionate with us and help us for our eyes are turned to you because you are God, the gracious and compassionate King. Amen. Um, we are looking at Lesson 7. Uh, we're going to look at fruit today. And the opposite of fruit... Actually, fruit either way. Uh, Fruit of righteousness, fruit of wickedness. Uh, This is from Psalms 1, and I'll just read the first part. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the Torah, the law of Hashem. Uh, I believe most English versions says the law of God, or the law of the Lord. And in his Torah, he meditates day and night. Um... If you go further down, it makes reference to he shall be like a tree, and he will bring forth fruit. And uh, what we recognize is there is a fruit of righteousness and there is a fruit of wickedness. We're going to look at that a little bit today because Yeshua, our master, speaks about that in his Sermon on the Mount. And that's what we've been looking at for the last few weeks, Sermon on the Mount. Matthews 5, 6, and 7 are what is called Sermon on the Mount. In, in, uh, the debate is because Luke talks about this as being uh, by the sea on the plain. In other words, a, 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 uh, not on a mountain at all. Uh, that's why some of the funny things when you go over the land of Israel, it's really funny. People like to go to the places where... Show me where, where Yeshua did such and such. And, and uh, um, there are some exceptions. There are some exceptions. But almost, almost every place they say, well, this is where he did it, is not where he did it. Because nobody could possibly know where he did it. The things that don't change are the landscape and Jerusalem. Those are the things that don't change. So if you want to know where he did it, go to Jerusalem. If you want to know uh, where he walked on the water, go look at the Sea of Galilee. Kinneret. 
you want to know where he preached the Sermon on the Mount, there is a very good likelihood it is up there in the northwest corner of the sea, whether it's actually by the water or up above, uh, quite a bit up above where, where uh, Catherine, uh, uh, Constantine's mother, uh, uh, decided to uh, pick a spot. She picked spots that were convenient for people to come and do the tourist thing. Uh, this is about 1,500 years ago. She figured that one out. A um, uh, lot of things like Nazareth, not, not where Nazareth is, just didn't exist there. So everybody goes, well, show me where Yeshua grew up. Well, that's not it. <laughs> I'm not saying he was never there, but that wasn't. that's not Nazareth. Uh, it, and, and in the same regard, uh, what you can do is, if you go up there and if you read the, if you read the gospel account, uh, you can know that this, this occurrence most likely had, it said he was up on the mountain praying, which is a very common thing in ancient pious ones, Hasidic pious ones, Yeshua didn't do something new is what they did uh, to go up and pray in private in the wilderness in the wild, in the woods and uh, it says in Luke that he was up on the mountain praying and he came down from the mountain and his disciples came to him here in, in Matthew it says he went up on the mountain uh, so it's, both are correct but uh, where you can pick the spot uh, would probably be someplace there are nice little cozy places around uh, the northwest. Uh, corner of the Sea of Galilee that uh, would probably be a very great place. Sermon on the Mount is what we're talking about. And he's teaching his disciples. And if you remember, the people that are listening in are not necessarily his disciples. He's not preaching to the crowd. He's preaching to his disciples. These are, these are words of instruction for his people. These are not words for the world to hear and find a better way to live. These are words for insiders. That's why people who teach the Sermon on the Mount and the blessed ashray, blessed is the man who has some sort of salvation formula, have missed it. Because his disciples have already bought in. They've already been considered a part of his family. They need to know there's hope. And that's what we looked at when we first looked at that. When we find a problem, though, is we, when we get to this book, when we get to this, 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 uh, this sermon, these three chapters in Matthew, is that uh, these sayings, and they don't quite line up with Luke because they're in different orders, but these sayings, and these aren't, this isn't his whole sermon. I mean, we don't have his notes, right? <laughs> but Matthew recorded accurately for us what he said and the, and, the, and the sense of what he said. And what he was saying, remember, was that he wants, he wants his disciples to know what kingdom people look like. What kingdom people look like. People in his kingdom. Uh, they were thoroughly convinced that he was Messiah. Even early on. Thoroughly convinced he was Messiah. And that he was bringing his kingdom. Now we recognize that his kingdom they experienced was not quite what they expected. But it's what we expect. We look for him to bring his kingdom on earth. Where all will recognize him as king. Right? So... We need to know what kingdom people look like today and yet in the, and also in the future. He describes how kingdom people live. He didn't take the, he didn't take the law, or, or some people call it the law of Moses, and throw it down and say, okay, see, I've, I've fulfilled all that. That's a code word for abolished. And most people that say it, it's a code word for abolished. Uh, even though his very words say, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I didn't come to lay it down, but to make it stand up, is what he said. Uh, so we see that there's a common misunderstanding in going through these books, that there's, a, there's the Jewish thing that was undone. Well, I'm glad we don't have to do all that stuff anymore. And he sets up a kinder, gentler law. And what I would offer to you is this kinder, gentler law actually is pretty tough, isn't it? It's not too tough. 
That's what we read last week in John chapter 5. Has he called you to do something that's too tough? No. My goodness. You're the people of God. He's the king. You're his subjects. He has called you to simply do what is your duty. Right? We've also seen how their deeds of righteousness, the kingdom people's deeds of righteousness, were to flow from the fact that they were kingdom people and that they would live as kingdom people. It's just natural. Well, supernatural. But it's natural. It's natural for Messiah's subjects, his people, his family, but his subjects, because he's king, his subjects to obey him. It's just natural. It's what we do. We've been, oftentimes, we, we have difficulty with it. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's to the point where we just, uh, you know, I never have problems obeying him. Of course I do. But I know that it's my duty. And I know that my relationship with him suffers when I disobey him. I know that. It's just like a parent. He's the king. That's exactly the way the king and his subjects relate to one another as well. The common errors that we see in reading, the common reading errors that we see in Matthew 5 and 7, Sermon on the Mount, that is that, that general principles, principles of righteousness trump the very commandments. That's nonsense. You know, God is very specific for a reason. When he is specific, and he's not specific for reasons when he's not specific. The Bible is not about principles, you know, concepts. That is the way that seminaries or universities teach people concepts. Once you get the concept, you can figure it out. The Bible is not a book of systematic theology, a concept book. It is a book so that we can know what the shape of God looks like. Now, looks in you know, parentheses looks like he's invisible but we can see and know his character by reading his word and by seeing and knowing his character we can see and understand how he wants us to live as his subjects his king we're the subjects right we, we oftentimes people read these chapters incorrectly by saying public righteousness is, is, uh, is somehow bad don't pray in public don't give alms in public don't uh, or give charity in public uh, and, and oftentimes what we are seeing is external religion equals insincerity I'm going to tell you something that is a lie it is a lie external religion can equal insincerity but eventually your fruit will bear you out and people who think that and I'm going to show you that zitzit external 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 equals insincerity a lie it doesn't not that I'm trying to say that I'm not insincere because I am sometimes <laughs> but the external don't, don't throw off the external for fear of being insincere you know what people do they have no problem at all putting a fish on their bumper sticker or a fish on their a bumper sticker or a fish on the back of their car no problem at all with that but they rile at the eye of phylacteries as they would call them those things that Jewish people put on external religion how sad how sad do you understand that, 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 that what we have done is we have concluded that there's something that we're comfortable with that's okay and the things that are, we're uncomfortable with or seem foreign to us that's external religion everybody everybody accuses everybody else of salvation by works <laughs> That's right, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, the advantage to something like Zitzi, the advantage is, I can say, yeah, numbers 15. Look, I was commanded to do it. I can't find anywhere it tells me to put a bumper sticker on my car. Not that that's wrong, because it's not. 
But I have an advantage there where I, if I can make that connection, and this is the key, and this we've talked about this before, if I can make that connection, that helps my relationship. It does. It helps me. I mean, I'm very selfish in this regard. It helps me remember that I am a subject of a great and awesome king. And I have a responsibility to listen to him and obey him even when I don't understand it. Now, I think I do, but, you know, most of the time I don't. I really don't. <laughs> when I read it, I go, oh, yeah, I got that all figured out. But I really don't understand. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and it's plural, to remind others of the commandments. That's right. So you see him go, and this, is, this happens in Jerusalem. The kippah is not a commandment. But you see a man wearing a kippah in Jerusalem, it tells you something very important. Because you don't see kippahs running around in Tel Aviv usually. Nope. You see two different things. Jerusalem is a holy city with people who are living faithfully. But for the most part, not all. But there's a significant number of observant in Jerusalem. Whereas Tel Aviv is the reverse. Significant number of non-observant. And by looking at the kippah, you immediately go, observe a man. You see a man without a kippah, he's making a statement in Jerusalem. He's making a statement. He's saying, I'm not observant. That's exactly what he's saying. Now, that's not a commandment. But, you know, the man who's wearing a kippah in Jerusalem also has tzitzit. And it's the tzitzit that you're supposed to be reminded of. The, the point is, you're not supposed to wear without a kippah, so that's what they say. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> There's lots of questions about it, but go ahead. What is the difference then uh, for Catholics carrying the rosary or, or wearing a cross? People wearing crosses. As far as what's not commanded, what's not commanded, I agree. What's not commanded, I agree. I agree. The difference, though, is that, uh, first of all, that no one is ever offended when I don't carry a cross. Whereas if I, if I am moving about in circles where people see the kippah as, as a symbol, a symbol of one who's come under the authority of God, that is a biblical principle. That is true. And the priests were commanded to wear their, cover their heads. Uh, if, if I move among people who do that and don't wear one, then I can offend them unnecessarily. It never commands me not to put a kippah on. That's the key. So the reason why I wear one is to make sure that I don't offend those who correctly identify what it really means. But it's also your intention. It's an intention. It, absolutely. Let's move on. Uh, let's go to chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 1. Matthew 5, or excuse me, Matthew 7, 1. I apologize. Judge not that you not that you be not judged. Uh, you know, does everybody in America know that verse? Oh yeah, that's right. People have no care at all to obey God. Are immediately said, "Don't judge me. Judge not, lest you." It's always in the King James English too. Lest you be judged. They forget in verse two. (laughs) That's exactly right. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's, boy, let me tell you something. Now that is a serious statement. <laughs> judge not lest you be judged means just do whatever you want. It's most people. Tolerance. That's tolerance. That's right. Exactly right. But look at this. It says, the measure you use will be measured to you. Oof. That's, that's some serious stuff. Because now the very tolerant, the politically correct word, the very tolerant are going to be judged very seriously. Aren't they? The measure that you measure, they're not tolerant because they want you to do whatever you want because obviously they've stopped you from doing things that are righteous. Just don't do that in my face. Right? 
that's pretty serious. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. Now here's the key. Don't ever let anybody read verse 1 and not read verse 5. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's. We have a responsibility to bear one another's burdens, and that includes one another's sins. And that means that when we see a brother sinning, we have a responsibility first to make sure that the plank in my eye is removed. So, I mean, what's, what is it? It's a constant reminder, a constant, just like the seed, external, constant reminder that I have a responsibility for my own, my own behavior and for my brother's behavior. And that I should never assume that because I see someone else's sin that I'm without sin. Because he sees my sin. This is a constant refining process. The people of God, listen, God's word, God's community was, was meant to be lived in a group, not by yourself. That's why we come together. It's why we should come together more often. It's difficult in this age, but it's, it's why we need to be together. Because we, we, we refine one another in that regard. That's right. That's right. And if he doesn't respond, he continues to take others. So it's not to say you should never correct somebody. No. And in fact, Yeshua is not teaching something new. For him, it was never new anyway. We see him as Logos, the Word made flesh. And the Word made flesh spoke long before Matthew chapter 7. Go to Leviticus chapter 19 as you did in your homework. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall not do injustice in judgment. Judge not lest you be judged. Be careful. The same measure that you give, you shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person, person of the mighty. James, chapter 1. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You should do it. You should, in righteousness. God's, God's standard. You should judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a, tattle, a talebearer among your people. Nor, you know, you talk about Paul, all Paul's things. He always lists gossip as number one sin against the, against the fellowship. And that's exactly right. You shall not be a talebearer among your people. Paul didn't teach anything new either, by the way. Nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Pay attention. I am the Lord. So he's saying, pay attention. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and shall not bear sin because of him. You shall rebuke your neighbor and not... So that's exactly what he says here, isn't it? It's exactly the same thing. First, remove the speck from your... And then you shall secure to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You should rebuke your neighbor. Don't bear his sin. Why? Because if one sins, all suffer. It's true. We're community. If one sin, all suffer. What does it mean not bear? In other words, you are guilty as well. If you do not speak, if you see your brother in sin and you do not speak, you bear his guilt. That's a serious thought. Mm-hmm. Don't, judge, don't judge me. Judge not lest you be judged. Well, that actually is wrong. Because that's intended to do the opposite of what God instructs us to do. We should go to one another and say, Brother, is there something that I can do to help you deal with this? Right? Now, an interesting thing here is, is, is when he gets to this point, he says, you shall not bear sin because of him. It's a perfect explanation for the difficult passage that, that, that uh, is brought to us in John chapter 8, verse 1, where there's a woman caught in adultery. And Yeshua 
bends down and writes something in the dirt. Right? And of course, everybody's explanation of this, and then, it, you know, who, held, who has sinned? Let him cast the first stone. And this is a, usually, they know that verse too. You know that one. <laughs> it's a difficult passage for a number of reasons. And one reason it's difficult is because anti-Semitics have used it to say, see, that, that whole stone and adulter, adulterers and adulteresses thing, that's the harsh law of God. We have a new God. He's gracious. See? Go and sin no more. And in reality, what is he's saying is, who here, for there's actually two pro, there's a number of problems. First of all, you don't just, it's not lynching. The Torah never has a lynching. It's always before judges. That's why he says, judge righteously. It's always, it's always a legal system. Our legal system is built upon, this, built upon the Torah. It requires two or three witnesses. Who here has done their job? Who's a legal witness? To be a legal witness, you had to follow Leviticus 19, 17. That means if you see your brother in sin, you go and speak to him. Who here is a legal witness? No one was a legal witness. Who here? Because why? And that's why I say, he who is without sin casts the first stone. Because that's the whole point. A legal witness, a legal witness was going to be, because there was nobody harmed, we didn't have, we didn't have the, the man there. So basically the legal witness has to be the, the one who throws first. Are you, will, are you willing? This is, a, this is an awesome thought. Are you willing to say, yes, I did. I did speak. I saw. I did speak. I did not act sinfully as a witness. And that's his whole point. There weren't, there weren't any legal witnesses. Is it grace? Yes. And that Torah actually teaches that grace. It actually teaches a procedure so that those who are not, so that you can't be wrong, so you can't be wrongfully punished, Unfortunately, we have a system that's polluted that, so we, people are wrongfully punished all the time. But the point is, God's instructions actually had, had safeguards for people to keep from being wrongfully punished. And so what does Yeshua do? He uses it as an opportunity, number one, to teach that they weren't even keeping the law themselves. How dare they point the finger at the woman who very likely did sin and say, you're not obeying God. What was his statement? Neither are you. Right? So, we have a responsibility to speak to one another. So, you, you really can't go to your brother and say anything if you're doing something wrong. It's the same thing. That's right. But let's talk about it because it, we, actually, we actually went through some scriptures and said, what, what, how are we supposed to approach this? That's a great point. Uh, first of all, uh, loving your neighbor as yourself. Uh, 7, 12, chapter 7, Matthew 7, chapter 12. Therefore, whatever you do, uh, want, want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, this is this is a summation statement. This is the law and the prophets. When we get to Matthew chapter 22, we're going to look at this again. The, the, what is the greatest commandment? Uh, these are not annulling statements. These are summation statements. He's not saying no commandment matters other than love God and love, love your neighbor as yourself. What he's saying is, if you want to know all the commandments, summation, it is this. Love God. Which, by the way, is, we, we say that every Shabbat. That's, that's the Shema. It's a command. One of my favorite things is people who say, no, no, we, the, the law of Moses has been, uh, uh, thankfully, oh, been done away for us. My, first, my favorite question then is, then is, so do you not love God? That's the first and greatest commandment from the law of Moses. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Jesus taught it too. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> yeah. Yeshua not only upholds, but he put, brings it in its correct perspective. It is the mark of kingdom people to live obediently. It is. 
it is a mark of kingdom people to live obediently. Uh, but we should love our neighbor as ourselves. So when we see our brother sin and we do not rebuke him, it is the same as hating him. That's what Leviticus 19 tells us. It is the same as hating him. The golden rule, as it's called, is a summation of the Torah and the prophets. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9-13. through 13, And I'm going to have to give you an overview, a little bit of an overview on this passage. Uh, the, uh, word has come to Paul that the Corinthian assembly has within it, they graciously accept a man who has, who has married his own stepmother. Uh, and, and in this, he's saying, excuse me, do you not know that this is wrong? Well, how, did they know, how would they know it's wrong? He says, well, even the Gentiles know this is wrong. But like, so like Greeks who would like, you know, do all sorts of nasty stuff with anything and anybody, they knew it was wrong? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying Gentiles even know that this is against the law of God. How would they know that? Because... Corinth is a place where there are Jewish people. All over the Gentile world, they knew Jewish law. Yes, they did. Jewish law? Well, that's what they thought it was. See, that's why, that's why it's very understandable when some of our brothers and sisters in the church think there is such a thing as Jewish law. It's God's law. But they knew that it was wrong. They knew it was wrong. So he says, hey, you know, even, even, even Gentiles know this is wrong. How did you not think that that still applied? I'm telling you right now, there is nothing, there is nothing in the American church that forbids what was going on in 1 Corinthians. It happens all the time. Maybe not in such starkly described terms, but there's all sorts of weird stuff going on. And everybody goes, well, you know, we're, we're not comfortable with it, but you know, if they don't come here, they won't hear the word. So we've got to be accepting so they'll continue to come. And what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, beginning in verse 9, says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company and sec- with, with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly, and did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out, out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are inside, God judges. Therefore, put away that from yourselves the evil person. This is where excommunication comes from. And the Catholic Church didn't invent it. It was common in Judaism already. Easily. I mean, it, it, was, a, it was a Jewish concept. No, it was a... It was a Torah concept. God's law commanded people to be put out of the camp if they if they would not repent from certain behaviors. And this is one of them. To be put out of the camp. Not to have any fellowship with them. To be put out of the camp doesn't mean damned. It means to not have fellowship. You're not a part of this community. Go away. When you can finally recognize that kingdom people live kingdom God's kingdom way then we can talk to you and fellowship you and help you and that's exactly what he does in 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians he turns around and goes listen you guys when, when he came to you and repented you needed to accept him back <laughs> because he's still part of the community it's just you have not been communicating or fellowship with excommunication. You have not been fellowshipping with him while he was not living as a kingdom person. Well, this is an awesome responsibility that not just churches but messianic congregations as well has very guilty of. We are not very good at this. 
at all. At first of all, recognizing sin in ourselves and then recognizing sin in our brothers and sisters and dealing with it in the biblical way. Because if we were, we would be healed. We would. It's remarkable how, how much blessing we have cut ourselves off from because we are not following God's precepts in this regard. 1 Corinthians tells us that we are to be fruit inspectors. We are supposed to look and see, is, this, is your fruit sin or unrighteousness? Is my fruit sin or is it unrighteousness? I mean, is it, is it righteous or is it unrighteous? Is it sin? Is sin the fruit? Or, or do you see righteousness coming from you? Um, go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. And this goes back to what you're talking about. Because although we have this responsibility, we need to be very careful. It is an awesome and fearful responsibility, as the responsibility of any judge. Because, you know, if you judge incorrectly, you know what it says? You will be punished as if you had committed the sin and were guilty. Uh, the Torah teaches that a judge, and actually a false witness, should be punished in the same way. Somebody lies in the stand... And a murder, and a capital murder. Yes, the Torah. Yeah, the, yeah. The. Someone lies on the stand in a murder, a capital murder case. Guess what? They should get the death penalty. Uh, that's how serious a false witness and, and false judging is. So it is a responsibility that we need to be very, very careful of. But uh, in, in that care, we need to re- understand that this is a responsibility of kingdom people. Kingdom people must, must, first of all, speak when they see their brother in sin. But they must speak this way. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Messiah. We must speak the truth of love. How do we do that? Boy, this is difficult. This is not easy, but it's not too difficult. He has never told us to do anything that is too difficult. This is the way that kingdom people respond to their king. That's right. Wrong, isn't it? We're going to have to two witnesses. I'm sorry, I can't listen. Yeah, that's right. I can't. That sounds like gossip to me. Which, by the way, is telling your brother or sister that's telling you this. That's a sin. <laughs> Right? I'm sorry, that sounds like gossip to me. You know, and a lot of times prayer, when you pray for so-and-so, it's just simply gossip. So doesn't this come into play very That's why we don't take prayer requests. Nothing wrong with prayer requests. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes prayer requests are about other people. Right, so you have to have a witness. <laughs> you have to have a witness, two witnesses. Yeah. By the word, two witnesses. Yeah. Uh, th- three is, it, three is, a, is, is, uh, is not preferred. Three just seem, simply means it's a majority. There should be no, no less than three witnesses. Two must agree. Go to uh, Ephesians chapter, uh, excuse me, go to uh, Matthew, back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 20. These are difficult words. They are very difficult words uh, in, in, this, in this Sermon on the Mount. Actually, let's go to verse 13. Um, Actually, no, no, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, the, every good tree, and Yeshua uses this analogy, uh, but it's an analogy that goes all the way through Scripture. Every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. You know this. By their fruits you will know them. But what are the fruit? This is the problem. It's not that people don't know this concept or know this verse. It's they don't understand what's fruit. They think being nice is fruit. And it is, but it's not what we're talking about here. Being nice is not what we're talking about. We're defining what being nice is. You understand? If somebody just has a nice and pleasant personality, that does not mean that they're being that they're having bearing good fruit. It just doesn't. 
There are nice people that are lost. You know? They just, they're just pleasant people. They've learned how to, how to offend people. That's fine. That's good. The problem is, that's not the fruit we're talking about. What we're talking about is, we're talking about, does their fruit identify them as a follower of our master, Yeshua? Now, that's pretty powerful now. Whoa. What kind of fruit is it? And it can't be something fuzzy. But they love everybody. Well, I, I know that that's, it is a, that is a good statement. But what does that mean? You say they love everybody one way, and I say I see it another way. What is define they love everybody? Oh, they're 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 nice. They're they're all they're always so kind. They're so sweet. Really, those are all descriptions of something other than what it's talking about. A fruit is what you do. You do fruit. Something that you describe, you need to give me an example. You can really tell me how they're kind. Um, I don't know, man. It's just like every time I see them, they're being kind. Well, specifically, how are they kind? Um, you know, one day, I saw them loading, uh, unloading groceries from their car and taking them to the door next, the house next door. You know, and I, I assume these people are poor. I assume that they're, I assume they're taking, geez, taking food to these people. So they did something that defined kindness to you. That is what we're talking about for fruit. They do something. It is what you do that defines. It is not what you say you believe. It is not what you, it's not a nice personality. Saying what you believe is usually the way people describe this fruit. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. This is an Nicene Creed. <laughs> I believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, I can't, actually can't remember the rest of it. <laughs> His only begotten son, yeah. <laughs> you know, as, as much as you may appreciate that creed, that is not fruit. What, what do people do when they join a church? Do you agree to this standard, this constitutional statement of faith? Statements of faith. There's nothing wrong with statements of faith. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that does not define us. What defines us is what we do. It is. You want to know how somebody? Watch what they do. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. These are frightening words. And I want you to understand, I find them frightening as well. I should go to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. What are they calling him? They're calling him Lord, Master. They should, not everyone who says shall enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, not everybody who says they're a member of the kingdom are kingdom members. But he who does the will of his Father in heaven. What is the will of your Father in heaven? Have you ever heard people say, you know, have you ever said it? You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm praying for God's will. I want, I want to know what God's will is. I want to know God's will for my life. It's usually young people. They're trying to make a decision. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. But you know something? God has revealed His will. Here it is. Start to finish. When you do this, you can, you can rest assured that you'll know everything you need to know about it. When you obey what He says, then you don't need to worry about which decision is right. You don't. Because one of the decisions will probably be crossed off anyway, or both of them. And if it's not, then it doesn't matter. Go either way. It doesn't matter. Why? Because I'm already keeping His will. I'm already doing His will. Will He bless me? Someone says, He will bless me. Either one I decide is fine. <laughs> He's going to bless me either way. Wow, what a great opportunity. I can choose the one I want. Which is really what people are oftentimes saying when they're praying for God's will is, I'm trying to figure out which one won't hurt me, but I know which one I want. 
that's good that they recognize that there may be something wrong in what you want. That's good. But you understand, God has revealed his will. And most people who are asking God to reveal his will to them are not willing to obey what he's already revealed. That's what we need to ask first. Am I willing to obey everything you say? Lord, I'll do whatever you say. Please, tell me which one's right. Starting off not knowing what it, what it is he's going to say is a great place to start. Uh, what does he do? He says, he says, not everyone who says to you. Uh, and then verse, uh, verse 23, excuse me. And then I will... Uh, Many will say to me, verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? That is something you do, by the way. That's not just a statement of faith. So this is scary. This is, this is doing stuff too. Is that bad to prophesy in his name? Not necessarily. Have we cast out demons in your name? Is that not bad? No, that's not bad either, necessarily. Could be. Depends on who you are. We saw that in, in the Acts. Done many wonders in your name. Is that bad? Well, maybe or maybe not, but it doesn't seem bad. It couldn't. It doesn't have to be bad. They're saying, I did all these things. This is the way it's usually explained. See, you can't do anything to earn your way into the kingdom. That's not what it's saying. Because what does he turn around and say? He says, not everyone who enters, but he who does the will of his Father. He does say that you must do the will of his Father. You do. Are you the salvation by grace? Yes. But you still must do the will of his Father. You do. So he's not contrasting faith and works here. He's just not. There is a contrast, but this isn't it. What's the difference? I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And I've written it on the board. Avon is the Hebrew, and uh, anomia is the Greek. It is usually translated in English, iniquity or sin. I've translated it here consistent with the way the English translators usually translate the word, its root, the Greek word, namas, law. So I've said, because to them, law means, law means bad, bad. The Torah is bad. That's what they would say. So, uh, so I've cons- translated it consistently. Many will say to me, Hashem, Hashem, or Lord, Lord. He will, he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of Torahlessness. You're doing things that are against God's revealed instructions. That's it. It's a problem. There's a problem with the relationship. I never knew you. See, this is the great thing. And that's why I talk about it. This, these little zitzi are external. And I can be a great fake with these on too. I can promise you. I can be a great fake with these on as well. But if I correctly use them, as I've been instructed, they are a form of relationship. I am relating. He says that I do it. If I remember that, and I use it in that way, he says that I do it. He says it, I do it. That's the way I respond, right? He's the king, I'm the subject. He speaks, I obey. If I, if I do it that way, and if that's, that's my constant life pattern, to constantly be saying, he speaks, I'll do. Whatever he says, I'll do. And constantly reflecting, is what I'm doing reflective of him and what he's told me to do or not to do? If I'm doing that, that's relationship. It is relationship. It is relationship. It's not a warm and fuzzy relationship sometimes. Some other times it really is. I can tell you, waving the lulav is a commandment. And waving the lulav can be warm and fuzzy. Don't do it very, very often, so it absolutely can. I mean, it can give you a great emotional high to know that you're obeying God in that way. It doesn't have to, but it can. But the point is, it doesn't always give you a warm and fuzzy, but it is always about relationship if you use it in that way. And that's why he gave it to us. He gave us these instructions so that, he would, so that we would know that we're his people. That's what he says. The Shabbat, so that you will know, so that you can, it'll be a sign that you're my people. 
This is what he wants us to do. It's about relationship. The relationship comes from first comes from us obeying. If we will do if we will do what he's told us to do, we will we will see relationship. We will have an opportunity to see a relationship. Matthew 13. Uh, we have this Torah, uh, or excuse me, this uh, this uh, parable he gives us in Matthew 13 about tares and wheat. Wheat is those those who have practiced lawlessness, Torahlessness, or excuse me, tares. The wheat is the righteous. They bring forth wheat. Matthew 24. Love grows cold. The Torah brings brings love. It does. It just does. The law is good because it was. It restores our relationship, our relationship to God. He's king, we're subjects. Right? Um, John 3, 4. Sin. And this is what he said. Do you want to know what anomia is? Sin is lawlessness. That's what he says. Sin is lawlessness. It's avon. And if you look at it, go to, uh, go to uh, Psalm 118.50 and we're going to finish up with this. Actually, I want to touch on... Building your house on the rock first. Psalm 119.50, excuse me. I want to show you how this word, it's not translated very well in English in Psalm 118, but it, how this word is used, avon, or anomia in Greek, is used. Psalm 118, uh, uh, Psalm 118, at Psalm, excuse me, Psalm 119.150, I apologize. Psalm 119.150, Psalm 119.150. Verse 150. They draw near who follow after wickedness. Your version may say mischief. King James says mischief, I believe. They are far from your Torah, from your law. It is the opposite. Avon is the opposite of obedience to God's law. That's it. So wickedness is the opposite. Disobeying God, the revealed will of God. Matthew 7.21, that's exactly what he's saying. Anomia, Torahlessness, is the opposite of doing the will of the Father. What did he say? Did you do that? Well, then you can, you, can, you can know that you have an opportunity for relationship relating to him. Those with bad fruit will find destruction, be cast into fire, will not enter the kingdom, will fall. Those with good fruit. By the way, does that mean if I keep the Torah, I, will, I have a way into life? Well, you have a way into life in the fact that you are walking in a way of life. That's true. And that if you are careful to observe, the relationship that those commandments bring, you will find a relationship with God. That's true. Absolutely. That's exactly what Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 3. If you will read the Torah with kingdom eyes, you will see Messiah in every command. It's true. You do. Messiah is there. He's there, and it's that's the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law knows knows that Messiah is revealed in it. It is the letter of the law that says the law kills. It's the stone. Moses' law is just stone. That's the letter that kills. They don't see Messiah in it. You know, people who believe believe in Messiah say that, but they don't see Messiah. It's like I got the New Testament. I don't need the Old Testament. He's there. He's all the way through it. Every word, every space, Messiah is being revealed. He says, "There's enter through the narrow, enter through the narrow gate, because the wide gate is a gate of destruction." Verse thirteen, and verse fourteen. The narrow gate is a way that is difficult, but it leads to life, and there's few who find it. The one who says, the one who says that I will build my house. What's the difference between the wise man and the foolish man? The little kid's song. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The rain came down, the floods. The, wise man, the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. The rain came down and the house was swept, washed away. 
Does anybody know the rest of the song? I bet your kids know. Wise man, foolish man. Do they know the rest of the song? This is a parable. Why did nobody talk about the rest of the song? What's the, who's the wise man? Who's the wise man? Don't look now. Who's the wise man? The man who hears my words and does them. Who's the foolish man? The one who hears my words and does not do them. It's, it's remarkable to me that, that the Sermon on the Mount can become a concept sermon. The vast majority of people, loving, Bible-oriented people, a concept, and they don't hear his words and do them. Hear his words and do them. That's the wise man. He builds his house upon the rock. And when the floods do come, and they will, you will not be washed away. I have a question about yes, ma'am. Verse, um, those with bad fruit will be will find destruction and be cast into the fire and not enter the kingdom. Yes. Will fall. What about Matthew 15? Matthew 15. Um, it's about the branches. Oh, and John 15. John 15. Yes. In fact, let's let's hold that thought because that's a great thought, and we are going to talk about that. Absolutely. Preaches on that. That's right. That's a great. Yeah. That's a great thing. But I always thought that the people that were cast into the fire were people that didn't accept Jesus Christ as their savior. It's it's a prophecy. That in the end time they will be burned up because they yes. refused him yes. to deny him. Yes, but coming up with a causative reason why maybe there's more to it than that. But yeah, I would agree with that statement. But let's let's finish up by saying this: um, Yeshua had ended these sayings. It was so that when Yeshua had ended these sayings, Matthew five, six, and seven, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Who are the scribes? They have no authority to interpret. The scribes said, this is what the word is, write it down. Maybe they make little scrabble notations off to the side, but those are scripture. But scripture is what you wrote down. I can, tell, I can give you 50 different reasons why that means what it means. In fact, if you read the Talmud, that's exactly what you're reading. You're reading 50 different interpretations of one word. <laughs> that's right. And there's nothing wrong with that, because that's what we're doing today, too. There's nothing wrong with that. Here's the difference. Yeshua's not like that. He's not giving you his opinion. He's telling you this is the way that it is. And they could recognize it. It's not that they heard a new teaching. It's that they were going, My goodness, listen to what he's saying. He speaks like this is the only way to read this. That's a total different way of looking at it. And when you do that, you begin to see he's not giving you a choice. An interpretation to take with you if you like it. He's saying, if you want to be the wise one, you must hear my words and you must do them. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you have not left us floundering or unaware. You have given us not only fair warning, but words of love and graciousness. You have called us. You beckoned to us as a loving husband beckons his his special bride. Father, we thank you that you have, you have found us, your people, to be your treasure and woo us with gentle words of love. Father, we take your, your, we take your word and accept it as a love letter. We, and we voice our love back to you by saying all the words that we have heard we will do. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Amen.